hope is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Aren't you, aren't you thankful for hope? Because without hope, we can easily begin to find ourselves kind of losing steam. We can kind of lose that drive to sort of keep on keeping on. That's what hope does. It, it keeps propelling us to keep moving forward, right? When it seems like that's not the best thing to do. Uh, there was a study done uh, a number of years ago with these Norwegian wharf rats because scientists have nothing better to do than to work with rats. But um, what they did is they threw a, a group of rats into the open waters to see how long they would survive. And within three minutes, one group began to kind of sink, go underwater and drown. And just with the other group, as they were about to drown at the same time, they, they plucked them out and rescued one group of the rats. The next day, they came and threw those rats back in the open waters again. And this time, they didn't start to drown after about three minutes. They lasted for uh, almost an hour and they fought. And, and just as they were about to drown again, the scientists came and, and scooped them up. Next day, they threw them back in the open waters. This time, they lasted for hours and hours as they fought to go under. And it seemed as they were kind of testing this, that with hope, they were able to continue on. They knew that they had been rescued previously and they knew that they fought long enough, there's that hope that they're gonna be spared. And you see, that's essential for us as well. Hope is essential for our survival because without it, it's tempting to wanna just kind of give up. But you see, we're not just talking about living a life that just kind of gets by in some sort of hope, we're talking about a thrill of hope. Do you know what that word thrill means? Keep answers to yourself. We wanna keep this PG. Um, but um, that word thrill, maybe some of you are starting to, you know, meditate, you know, I found my thrill on Blueberry, uh, right? I have no idea what Chuck Berry or Richie Cunningham for that matter was singing about, but the way that we define uh, a thrill is a feeling of excitement, right? It's like those of you that love to go on roller coasters, how many roller coaster riders are here, right? You do it, it's sometimes scary, you're like apprehensive, but it's a thrill, right? There's this feeling of excitement and, and just this, this thrill that happens as you ride this roller coaster, you know? And, and that's not for everybody, it's not for me. Uh, my thrills are, are other things, but Roller coaster is not necessarily one of them. But you see, there's this feeling of excitement and joy that hope and, and a thrill of hope seems to breed for us. Now, we're going to look at some of this hope today from Isaiah. All right. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. And we're going to be camped out here in Isaiah as we look at hope from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 9 contains some of the more well-known and repeated uh, verses over Christmas season, right? For unless a child is born, a son is given. We're gonna get to that later on. But what I wanna do this morning is I wanna back up a little bit. And I wanna look at some of the background and the context to which this is being prophesied because Isaiah gives a number of prophecies through this section of, of scripture and, and throughout the book, but we're gonna look at a few of these prophecies that are coming and they're verses that come and bring us this thrill of hope. You see, Isaiah is writing some amazing prophecies during the time of King Ahaz. And this is during the time uh, when the 
The nation of Israel is divided into two separate kingdoms. You got the 10 northern tribes up in the north that are, are, have separated. They're known as the northern kingdom and oftentimes it's referenced as Israel. And then in the south, you've got Judah and Benjamin, the two southern uh, tribes that make up the southern kingdom, oftentimes just referred to as Judah because Judah was the largest uh, tribe there in the south, the larger of the two. And so you got the kingdom right now that's divided. And King Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. And he's not a good king. He's a very ungodly king. Isaiah, as he mentions in the beginning of the book here, he's writing during the reign of four different kings. So he's got a very expansive kind of ministry. And he's writing during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, Jotham, Uzziah, Hezekiah, these are all good kings. But Ahaz kind of comes in between them as the complete opposite. He's not a good king. He's not serving the Lord. It's a very dark period in Israel's history. Yet it's in these passages that we begin to get a glimpse of the hope of all nations, the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's going to emerge. And this would be good news because it's gonna bring a real hope in difficult times. But here's the thing, that hope isn't gonna come for another 700 years from the time that these things are being written. 700 years is a long time to wait for hope, isn't it? That's why I mentioned earlier, like, like hope can be something that's sometimes laborious. It's, it's waiting, it's kind of agonizing. You know something's gonna come, but we don't always experience it in the here and the now. But throughout these prophecies that Isaiah gives during these times, we see that God is at work and God is with them and God is showing himself strong on their behalf. Now, for some further context, Ahaz is at a time where he's a little bit worried. He's a little bit scared as to what's going on between the two kingdoms because the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, like I said, they were feuding oftentimes, but now the Northern Kingdom has begun to form an alliance with another foreign nation, Syria. And Syria and Israel, the Northern Kingdom are, are kind of conspiring together to come against Judah. And so Ahaz is sort of freaking out. This is not good news for him. And so what Ahaz does, instead of doing what many of the good kings would have done and turn to the Lord for help. Ahaz, who's not a good godly king, he turns to Assyria, another foreign nation, to be their help and defense, thinking maybe we can bond together over a common enemy that we have in Syria and Israel. And so Ahaz turns to this nation of Assyria. Now, Assyria is gonna work on their behalf and they're gonna take out uh, Syria and Israel, but little does Judah know that they're also on a serious hit list. And Assyria isn't gonna stop with just taking out Syria and Israel. They're gonna continue to move in against Judah. Look at what the word of God gives to Isaiah to share in this time, Isaiah chapter eight, verse five to eight. We're gonna look at three things here. The past truth that we have, the future hope, and the present comfort. Past truth, future hope, and present comfort. If you're taking notes, write those down. So look at this past truth here because Isaiah speaks out now and he says in verse five of chapter eight, the Lord also spoke to me again saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son. Now, therefore behold, 
The Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So the Lord speaks out and lets Judah know that his care for them would have been like the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh. Oh, if you had turned to me, I would have been your protection. I would have been your help. And it would have been a peaceful one, like sitting by a nice stream in the meadow. And it just gives this feeling of tranquility and peace. And it's like, oh, this is so sweet. That's what God desired to be. And Shiloh is referencing the pools of Siloam that, that sat outside the city of Jerusalem that became a water source to come inside the city with Hezekiah, an amazing story in, in the Bible. And when you go to Israel, you get to see Hezekiah's tunnel, this tunnel that was built to bring the waters from the pools of Siloam into the city. And so this is referencing the waters of Shiloh here. And God desired to be uh, a help and a comfort to them, right? Isn't it nice to know that God desires to, to lead us and care for us? And when we trust in him and walk in obedience, it's gonna be that, that peaceful journey, sitting by the streams of gently flowing waters. But King Ahaz wanted some military might that he could see. He wanted something tangible that would come in and just you know break the necks of, uh, of enemies. And so he puts his hope in Assyria. And for a time, they're rejoicing in what is happening. And it's mentioned there in verse six that they rejoiced in Rezin and in Ramalia's son. What's that a reference to? Well, Rezin was the king of Syria. And Ramalia's son was Pekah. And Pekah was the king of the northern tribe, northern kingdom at this time of Israel. So you got the king of Syria, Rezin. You got the king of Israel, Pekah. And they were taken out wiped out by the Assyrian army. And so the people of Judah are rejoicing. Oh, look at our plan is coming to fruition. We were so wise to put our trust in Assyria. Look at what they've done for us. And they're rejoicing in these things. Little did they know that the same fate is heading now their way. See, God would have been that gently flowing water for Judah, but because of her trust being in outside sources, she's gonna experience the fierce flow now of Assyria who's pictured like that mighty river that's gonna be flowing over that strong and mighty waters of the river. And when it speaks of waters of the river, it's, it's kind of referencing the Euphrates, which is up towards the, the Northeast where uh, Assyria would be coming in from. And there'd be a strong, tumultuous water coming against them. And notice these waters are gonna come right up to their necks. Judah's gonna be sitting there and all of a sudden, they're gonna feel that point where they're like those Norwegian wharf rats that are ready to go under. They're ready to drown. They're feeling the, the water and the pressure of Assyria coming against them right up to the next where they feel like we're goners, we're doomed. But in the point of despair, Isaiah gives this reminder of hope. He says, notice what we read there at the end of verse eight, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land Oh, Emmanuel. Well, that's already been mentioned in Isaiah 7, verse 14, when again, we have another wonderful Christmas verse and prophecy given when Isaiah says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. That was to be a sign of God's protection and help. 
bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. But again, like I mentioned, well, this Emmanuel isn't going to come onto the scene for another 700 years. How is this gonna be of any help to them at this time? Because Emmanuel is eternal. And Emmanuel rings through, true through the centuries and throughout the millennia, that Emmanuel is present. And this word was given to Joseph in, in comfort for him in a time of confusion and concern when he sees his bride or his soon-to-be bride, Mary, pregnant. Notice what it says in Matthew 1, verse 20 to 23, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And you see here in Isaiah, we're seeing this theme building that God is with his people. The Assyrian army is treading where it doesn't belong because why? As we saw in Isaiah eight, verse eight, he's coming into Emmanuel's land. He's coming into God's territory. This goes on to this very day where battles continue to ensue over this land where you got nations and, and, and people that are fighting and, and, and warring over this land thinking, no, this is my land. No, this is your land. No, that's not that song, but it's God's land. It's God's land, you see? And his promises continue to hold true that he's given this land to his people. And this land is not to be sold, not to be bought, not to be taken by somebody else. It's God's land. It's Emmanuel's land. And he's gonna come again and take what is his. And everybody is gonna see at that time that they've been fighting a losing battle. Because God's not done with his people. Israel He's not done with that land. And in the same way, here's a great application to us. We, as believers in Jesus, belong to the Lord. We're His. We're His prized possession. Satan may come and try to wage war against you, but he's treading on God's territory. And God is fighting your battles for you. And God is already victorious how we need to trust the Lord, lean on Him, and recognize we're His. And there's no weapon that can be formed that can prosper against us. God is victorious. God before us, who can be against us? And suddenly we see this prophecy in Isaiah now, chapter eight, begin to shift focus where it's been kind of highlighting what's gonna be happening against Judah as these mighty waters of Assyria are gonna be coming and, and, and almost drowning them. But now God begins to shift that focus upon Assyria in verse nine. Notice what we read there, Isaiah eight, verse nine. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Just so they don't miss it. He repeats it twice, man. It's not gonna go well for you, Assyria. And he says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. God is with us. The Assyrians could do whatever they wanted to think that they are battle ready that they're gonna be victorious, but in the end, they're gonna be broken. Why? Because God is with Judah. That's what the very name Emmanuel means. When that prophecy was given in Isaiah 7, 14, it was to be a sign for them, a sign that God is with them. The glimpse of that promise given in 
chapter 7, verse 14, but the evidence of this promise is given in Isaiah 8, verse 10. It's Emmanuel's land and God is with us. Everything Assyria thought they would be able to do in steamrolling over Judah will come to nothing. Their plans will not prosper because God is with them. To see the eternal existence of Emmanuel, we only need to look at the scene that is going to unfold when, when Assyria eventually comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem there in Judah, the southern kingdom. They'd eventually come right up and again where laying siege to the city was not a pleasant situation for the people in the city. The, the Assyrians camped all around the city for days, weeks, months perhaps. And they would stop all things from coming into the city. Nothing was coming out of the city. Nobody's getting freed or rescued and all things are stopped. No food, no water supply coming in the city. And the people in the city would just hear the dread. They'd hear the taunts. You got, uh, you got Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, just, just taunting them and shouting out, you know, just threats to them. They're hearing this. They're going to bed every night wondering, is this gonna be the night that they're gonna eventually just, you know, come in and devour us? Is this the night that we're gonna be goners? It's a slow, painful death that they would begin to, to live out. It wasn't pleasant. But there's an amazing story that takes place with our Emmanuel here. And it's an amazing story. We love to think of stories like David and Goliath, all oh, that really shows the, the might of God awesome or Daniel Einstein, and they certainly do that. But here's a story that oftentimes gets overlooked and it's repeated three times in scripture, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and in Isaiah chapter 37, as it jumps ahead to talk about what is gonna be happening and what God eventually did here with the Assyrians. And it says this in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians as they're laying siege to the city, 185,000. And when people in the city arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all of them dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Eventually his life would be taken from him too. See, like I said, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were in despair as though they were just waiting to die. The waters, the pressure was rising, wondering, are we gonna make it? But notice what happens. The angel of the Lord came to the rescue. Well, who's that? Angel of the Lord, well, we saw him last week in the great message that Curtis gave us, uh, Genesis chapter 16 with Hagar going off from the wilderness in just turmoil and despair. And there the angel of the Lord came and ministered to her, the God who sees, the God who hears. We saw the angel of the Lord in our study last Wednesday as we're going through the book of Exodus and Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 says, behold, God says, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I prepared. Notice how the New King James capitalizes angel there in Exodus 23. And oftentimes as we see the angel of the Lord throughout scripture is capitalized. The angel of the Lord, my friends, is speaking of the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's a Christophany, the very existing eternal Jesus reveals himself here in Emmanuel to help the people of Judah who are seeing their city laid siege, wondering, is this it? Are we goners? Before he came as a babe in Bethlehem, he was a man in battle, my friends. Before he uttered his first infant cry, he'd already sounded the war cry. This is Emmanuel, who's always been, who didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He's not just the God who is to come, he's the God who always was, who is with us 
and is fighting for us, my friends. That's Emmanuel. And that's important for us to keep before us because there are days where that may seem like that's the furthest reality and truth for us, especially when we feel tempted to, to turn to inferior sources, thinking that this is gonna be a help. This will be an aid in our lives and it always comes up empty. It always leaves us more, uh, 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 more in despair if we're not turning to the Lord. That's what Judah began to do. And despite the promises and hope assured them, Look at how that chapter ends here in chapter eight, verse 22. It says, then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they'll be driven into darkness. That's what Judah's experiencing right now. Thinking Assyria is gonna be of help. Oh, Isaiah 37 hasn't happened yet. <laughs> they haven't seen the angel of the Lord, but that angel of the Lord is active. It's God with us, Emmanuel, working on their behalf. But right now, they're not in a pleasant place. They're in a difficult place. Trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish. Those aren't things that we wanna walk through and endure in our life, is it? It's not a pleasant place to be, but it's often the place we find ourselves when we fail to trust the Lord and make Him our shelter and refuge. When we fail to see that He's God with us today. But here's the thing, my friends, God never desires to see anyone remain in a place of darkness. And as we look to him, we continue to see the hope that lies with him. In chapter nine, we move ahead to a future day, a day once again that Isaiah begins to prophesy of how God is not done with them yet. Though the waters are gonna rise up, though there's gonna be pressure mounting, God is not done with them. God's still gonna work them and they're gonna experience a blessing in a future day when Jesus is gonna shine brightly in and bring joy where there once was gloom of anguish. Look at chapter nine, verse one with me. It says there, and we begin to look at this future hope, we've seen the past truth. Emmanuel has always been God with us. Now we look at this future hope. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan and Galilee, the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. I'm just gonna stop right there. But notice that first word we see in chapter nine, nevertheless. You see, this is a, a, a striking contrast that's given. It's like when we read in scripture, but God. And when we read that, but God, it's revealing God is not done with us. God changes things. God is at work taking us from one place to a different place. God doesn't want you to remain in a place of gloom and anguish and distress. Isaiah continues to fill in the picture for us of who Emmanuel is and what he's done for us. Now notice the land of Zebulun and Naphtali are pointed out there in verse one. These were two tribes that settled in the Northern region up in the Galilee area. And you see, it says that they've been distressed. They've undergone 
oppression and difficulty. And, and you see, Zebulun and Naphtali are, 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 are kind of singled out because it was in this area that would be the first to experience the forcefulness of the invading Assyrians who came in from the north. The Assyrians would make their way in along this route, and these would be some of the first tribes that would experience just the, the heaviness of the Assyrians. So they've, and, and then the northern kingdom was carried away into captivity, and the Assyrians began to just bring in other people to populate the land so that Israel would begin to le- uh, lose their identity. They'd have different nation and different people groups that would come into the land. And that's why it's known here in verse one as, uh, as Galilee the Gentiles. Because in Jesus' day, there was just a, a mixed multitude there. But it'd be in this area that had experienced the first people to experience God's judgment upon them that would now experience a greater and better outpouring of blessing. See, that's exactly what happened when Jesus came on the scene and began to make the Galilee his kind of headquarters for his ministry. Capernaum specifically was where he kind of headquartered. He began to travel around to the various cities in the Galilee region, this place that had once walked in great darkness and seen such heaviness. Now they're seeing the light of the world come and shine in on them. And they had the blessing, unlike anybody else, to see the majority of the miracles performed in their home area of Galilee. Amazing to see. In fact, these passages are quoted in Matthew 4, verse 13 13 to 16, to show how these verses ultimately pointed to the Messiah's ministry. And we read there, after leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who sat in the region and shadow of death, as Isaiah said, light has now dawned upon them. In fact, like I said, the bulk of Jesus's ministry took place in this region of Israel, this once lightly esteemed land. This land has been shadowed in darkness for so long and now has indeed seen a glorious light, the very light of the world, Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that God doesn't leave us in dark places because we've all felt, I'm sure, the gloom of our own tragic mistakes and shortcomings. We too, as, as Isaiah 9 verse two says, we have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. But Jesus desires, and understand this, Jesus desires to move in and minister to us and among us. He desires to take broken people who are in need and those that acknowledge their need and cry out to him. And he takes and completely transforms them and makes the news. He shines his light in the darkness, dispelling it all. It's a reminder too of our future hope that though things might not be as they ought to be, as we want them to be in this world, we live amongst a, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a wicked world. We live amongst evil in our world, but God isn't finished yet, my friends. There's coming a time when he is going to come back and he's going to establish his reign physically on this earth, where we're going to see the glory of the Lord illum- illuminating the whole earth. It's going to be a beautiful time. That's the hope that we have. But it's not just a hope to hold on to. It's something that we need to understand today that we have Emmanuel with us right now, shining into our very lives. May his light shine ever so bright in areas 
of despair that you might be in today. May your joy be increased as you look to Jesus and allow him to walk through your life and overcome that darkness. Well, this hope is all possible because of who Jesus is. He's always been, always will be, and he's every bit present with us in the here and now. And that's the reason we can have a, a thrill of hope. We're never alone, my friends. And so we look at this present comfort right now. It leads us to Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, the, the well-known verses here at Christmas time. And we read here, for unto us the child is born, unto us the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How wonderful this promise is. And may it be a reminder to us that indeed, a child's been born and a son has been given to us. Not just something to dwell upon that happened hundreds of years ago, not just something to think about in a future reality when he comes again, but for us to recognize this son has been given to us today to assure us that God is with us and he dwells among us. A child is born speaks of Christ's humanity. A son being given speaks of his divinity as though given to us by our, our heavenly father. He's fully man and fully God. He's the only one able to come and reconcile us to our heavenly father. A son was given to you that you may be redeemed and set free from all that comes against you, from all that oppresses, from all that brings gloom of anguish. He's come to deliver you out of that today that you might experience his light, his glory, his beauty in the here and now. There's joy in receiving a child, isn't there? For those of you that have, I mean, we've had a lot of babies born this year in the church here, and I love it. I've had the joy of experiencing a grandson being born to me, and it is so awesome, so wonderful. But you know what? We don't put a lot of expectations on these newborns, right? I'm not sitting there going, you know, to my grandson, would you go and get me a Coke? please. Like, like he's not, I'm just, and not a lot of expectations. I'm just, I'm just waiting for the day he can actually stand on his own, right? You know, not a lot of expectations, but with Jesus, notice it says that the government is going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to be ruler of all. It's the truth now, yet in a coming day, we're going to see the fruition of that physically when he reigns over this earth. But again, it's not just a future hope, it's a present reality when we see who he is for us, when we open up our hearts and allow him to reign and rule from our lives, that we might experience that blessed peace. And we see that as we look at the, the wonderful names given to him, but these names are more so revealing the very characteristics of Emmanuel, who's God with us. He'll be a wonderful counselor. He's the one that provides all the answers that we need. He gives good counsel that leaves us just in, in awe and wonder. When you have a problem, when you have trouble, may you turn to Jesus and not turn to inferior sources as King Ahaz did. May we look to Jesus. But notice he's not just a wonderful counselor, He's the mighty God. He doesn't just give us the answers. He's the very one that's able to carry that to fruition. He's the one that has the power to accomplish those things. He doesn't just say, here's what you ought to do. Now, good luck going and doing that. 
he gives us the enabling power. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father, which reminds us again that he is eternal. He's not somebody just to look ahead to. He's not somebody to look behind to. He's eternally existent with us today. He is our Emmanuel God with us and he is the Prince of Peace. What a great way to view Jesus. There's a lot of people looking for peace today because they're surrounded by conflict. We live in a world of just constant feuding and, and conflict. But Jesus, again, is gonna establish that reign of peace. But that peace is meant to be known today in our hearts as we open up and let him in, as we allow him to shine brightly in our lives, dispelling the darkness, removing the things that hinder, and letting us experience that joy and peace in Jesus. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this Christmas season that these characteristics of Christ are known all the more and not just known, but truly experienced in your life. Because we look to the manger to see how Jesus came and made himself available to us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And this is not just a future hope, but a present comfort, a past truth. He's always been at work, always will be at work. He's with us and he's leading all things to his good and perfect purposes. So may we continue to rejoice in him and look to him as we've never done before for the God that he is. He's Emmanuel, God with us. All right, let's pray. Worship team, would you come? And Lord, we, we turn to you right now and God, we thank you for the things that we see you at work doing in history past. But it's a reminder that, Lord, you've always been at work. And you're at work today in our lives. You're present with us because you're God with us. You're not just a God to look to with future hope as is very clear and exciting, but we have that thrill of hope because you're the God that's with us now, who's moving and, and meeting our needs and ministering and fighting on our behalf. And Lord, may we continue to rest in you, turn to you, trust you for all things. May this Christmas season be a time where we just experience the blessed joy and thrill of living life in you and with you, Jesus. So pray this in your name, amen.